I grew up listening to Schoolhouse Rock, and I know that dates me a little, but I suspect with the internet and all, there are many in every generation alive today that are familiar with the songs of Schoolhouse Rock. Songs like Interjections, I'm Just a Bill, and Conjunction Junction. I know you're singing it in your head right now. I'm not going to sing those songs for you today, but I will say that they were formative during my development years as I was growing up. And it was during those years that I also learned that the number three, well, there's something about that number that's magic. And in today's episode, we'll look into the significance of the number three, both culturally and biblically. And with that, I'd like to welcome you to episode 81. Three. It's a magic number. Three is a magic number. Yes, it is. It's a magic number. Somewhere in the ancient mystic trinity, you get three as a magic number. Well, this is Greg Hall, and welcome back to another episode of the Rethinking Scripture podcast. It's today that we're not just going to listen to Schoolhouse Rock songs, but we are going to dive specifically into the number of magic, the number three. And we're going to take a look first here at just some cultural examples of how significant the number three is. These are things that you already know, but I'm just going to package them together here and present them in such a way that they seem very significant to you. <laughs> Let's see if that works. And then we're going to move on to biblical examples of the use of the number three in a series of three events or three characters or a lot of different ways. And then we're going to finish just because we've been talking about rest for so long on the podcast here. We're going to finish with how that number three might factor into the type of rest that is available to believers today. It's an elusive type of rest. It's a rest that the biblical authors are encouraging us as believers, post-Pentecost believers, to understand the dynamics of so that we don't miss out on the opportunity that lies before us. And that opportunity is somehow mixed up with the number three. And we'll look at that as we finish out today. But first, before we dive into the cultural examples of the number three, I would like to give just a preview of the next episode because I'm really excited about it. Pretty soon here, I'll be interviewing Dr. John Walton on the podcast. And specifically, he'll be responding to questions that were posed in the Facebook discussion group that I started, the John H. Walton discussion group. So people in the group posted questions. I've run some of those by Dr. Walton, and he has agreed to answer all of the ones that I sent his way. So pretty soon, I'll have a video conference with Dr. Walton. We're going to record the whole thing, and that'll become the next episode. So if you're not familiar with John Walton's work, other than maybe hearing me talk about them here on the podcast, this will be a great chance for you to just hear Dr. Walton respond to a few questions over varying different topics. 
and you'll just get to know him a little bit better by the way he answers the questions that have been posed. So look forward to that. And with that said, we're just going to be diving in to the number three here pretty heavily today. (laughs) And I thought I'd start with just combining, gathering together some cultural examples of how we deal with the number three in a lot of different ways just in everyday life. So just to start with, unless you're an artist, you might not think about this often, but there are three primary colors that when you have those three and you're able to mix them, we can come to most of the other colors on the color wheel in the whole spectrum of color. And so my question is, do you remember the three primary colors? I'm just going to pause a second, let you think about that. Say it out loud to somebody so they can hear you. Those three colors are red, yellow, and blue. Did you get it? (laughs) I'm not sure I could have answered that. So the number three plays into things as basic as our color wheel. It also plays into languages. I don't know if you have ever heard of the Rosetta Stone. You probably have. It's a stone that included the same text in three different languages, the Rosetta Stone. It contains inscriptions in Egyptian, in hieroglyphic, and in classical Greek. And it was the Rosetta Stone, it was the use of three on the Rosetta Stone that helped reveal the secrets of hieroglyphic writing. And here's the little trivia, where would you go to see that today if you wanted to find it and look at it? Well, you would go to the British Museum in London. That's where that is. Another example of three, a Venn diagram. You know, the three interlocking rings that we often use to show the similarities and differences between concepts. I love Venn diagrams, and maybe the best one that I've ever seen is one that compares bank robbers and disc jockeys with preachers. And if you've not seen that Venn diagram, you definitely need to look that one up and just Google it right now. Venn diagram, bank robbers, DJs, and preachers. Uh, I'll let you guess. What's the one thing that connects those three different people? Bank robbers, DJs, and preachers. In the center of that Venn diagram, it suggests that all three of these professions require people to put their hands up. But examples of the number three aren't just for our culture and our time or for just maybe Christianity. There are threes that you will find in a lot of different places. Uh, For instance, Zoroastrianism. I don't know much about Zoroastrianism, but on the internet, it did say that there are three ethical principles taught, and they are to think good, to speak good, and to act good. And I might not agree with the English on all those, depending on exactly what they're trying to describe, but Zoroastrianism has three ethical principles upon which it's based. And moving into philosophy a little bit, I've done a little bit of Plato study, and Plato talks about a utopian city. He talks about this in several places, and in that utopian city, there are generally just three populations. He describes them as laborers, warriors, he calls those guardians, 
and the ruling class. And for Plato, the ruling class are philosophers. So in the Platonic worldview, the world is really divided into three classes, three types of people that exist or that would exist in a utopian society. How about fairy tales? In fairy tales, three is often the magic number. And often in these stories, a series of three is used to create a progression in which the tension is created. So it starts with building tension, and then the tension builds up, and then it's finally resolved. That's a series of three. And in fairy tales, heroes and heroines are often offered three choices or three tests. And they often fail the first two, but they overcome the difficulties on that third try. What are some examples? Well, you have the three little pigs. You have uh, Goldilocks and the three bears. The three blind mice. The three billy goats gruff. I don't know if you remember Jack and the Beanstalk, but he climbed the beanstalk three times. How about Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz? She returned to Kansas, how? By clicking her heels three times. The Boy Who Cried Wolf? <laughs> what was that story? Well, he cried out three times. And if all those examples aren't enough, we've got a lot of other examples of three main characters in stories. How about the Harry Potter series, or Star Wars, or Star Trek? Well, for that matter, the Three Stooges, the Three Musketeers, the Three Amigos, <laughs> Three's Company, and last, but certainly not least, Charlie's Angels. Well, just from these examples, and there are many more, but just from these, you can kind of see that there's something about Three. And the significance doesn't just belong to modern pop culture. As we will find out, number three is critical within the pages of scripture as well. Well, today we're looking into why the number three is so magical. And by magical, I don't mean magical. I think you know that. There's just something significant about the number three. And when we get to the Bible, it's even highlighted more. The obvious one that we're going to start with is three is obviously the number of the Holy Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And while the word Trinity is not found in the Bible itself, the concept of the three persons is certainly found there. Where else do we see three? Well, I'm going to miss a lot of them, but here's some of the ones I came up with. How about the three wise men that came to Jesus bearing gifts? <laughs> now, if you've listened at all to this podcast, you already know that that's not a thing. Nowhere does it say there were three wise men, but it does say that there were three gifts that they brought. What were those gifts? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I suspect, as I said back in the Rethinking Nativity series around the holidays, that there were a lot more wise men than just three. When Jesus spoke of his ministry, at least one time, he described himself as the way, the truth, and 
and the life. Find that in John 14, 6. That's three different ways he's inviting us to see him and his ministry. Saul was on his way to Damascus when he fell to the ground, and for three days he was blind. It's that same Paul that later in 2 Corinthians 11.25 says, Three times I've been beaten with rods, and three times I've been shipwrecked. Venturing back into the Old Testament, let's do that for a minute. Well, there were three angels that visited Abraham, announcing that his wife Sarah was to give birth to a son. Genesis chapter 18. If we go all the way back to Noah, Noah had how many sons? Three. What were their names? Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And if you've listened through the Acts portion of the podcast here, you also know that there are three road narratives in the book of Acts, and each of those narratives has to do with a descendant of one of the three sons of Noah. Back in the New Testament, Jesus resuscitated three people from the dead. I don't know if you know that. One of those we talked about in episode 16. It was Lazarus. You can read about that in John 11. Jairus' daughter in Mark 5 is another one. And the only son of a widow in Luke 7. How about some more New Testament? Jesus predicted that Peter would deny knowing him how many times? three times before the cock crowed, Luke chapter 22. And how about the temptation of Jesus? It was after Jesus was baptized, he spent some time in the desert, and during this time, Satan tried to tempt him three times. That story, as I point out in my book, Rethinking Rest, that story actually has connections to where we'll finish today in the book of Hebrews and all the way back to Exodus Chapter 17. Moving on now, uh, how about the parable of the Good Samaritan? Three people arrived at the site where the man lay half dead. Do you remember who it was? It was a priest, a Levite, oh, and a Samaritan. It was the third one that showed mercy and took care of him. And it's in these last three stories, the one about Peter and the cock crowing and Jesus' temptation, and this last one about the Good Samaritan, you can clearly see that the author chose a series of three to create a progression in which the tension is first created, and then it builds up in the middle, and then it's finally resolved at the end. So those are all great biblical examples, but I, I'm missing one. I'm missing one big one. Do you, do you know what it is? Yeah. Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, it says. And in the book of Luke, when you skip past his resurrection to chapter 24, it's that same Jesus, having risen from the dead, who suggests that the whole of the Old Testament is filled with references hinting to his resurrection on the third day. I've talked about several of these in different episodes, but one of the obvious examples is the one that he points out earlier in his ministry. It's the story of Jonah and the whale. So the idea is that you can go back into the Old Testament with Jesus's approval, Luke 24, 44, and you can look for third-day references. 
Those are events that happened after three days or on the third day where somebody overcame a death-like experience. Jonah in the whale, a death-like experience. And Jonah comes out of the whale. He hasn't died literally, but it's a death-like experience. And it's one that prefigures, Jesus suggests, his ministry and his ultimate resurrection, not from the belly of a great fish, but from the belly of the earth and very death itself. So we've mentioned that in stories, a series of three is often used to create a progression in which the tension is created and then built up and then finally resolved. Heroes and heroines are often offered three choices or three tests. And usually in the series of three, they overcome their difficulties on the third try. We're all familiar with the expression, the third time's the charm. It's used to express the hope that after failing twice to accomplish something, one might just succeed in the third attempt. The third time's the charm. Well, in the remainder of today's episode, we're going to revisit the biblical topic of rest, and specifically how three tests given to that wilderness-wandering generation in the early chapters of Exodus might play into the conversation. Over the last couple of episodes, we've been looking at the complexity of the REST API, that's after Pentecost instruction. And the Bible, surprisingly, does give REST API. It talks about the REST that's available after that Pentecost experience and how it might be different than what was available before. I focused my attention on two chapters, specifically in the book of Hebrews, chapters 3 and 4. And it's in those chapters where the author not only discusses the topic of rest, but he does so by way of taking his readers back to several Old Testament examples. And I've talked about this before. Most of our modern-day discussion regarding rest centers on some form of a a one-day-a-week observance of Sabbath. If you're to look, and it's easy to find them, an overwhelming majority of the books on Sabbath rest today focus on the fourth of the Ten Commandments, where instruction is given to step away from normal labor for one day a week. And don't get me wrong, These books sell really well in our modern society where we seem to be working way too much. And not only working too much, but we're easily distracted by things like cell phones and various other technologies that have maybe entered into our lives. With our current cultural trend of heavily focusing so much on the fourth commandment, one might expect that REST API, the after Pentecost instruction, in the book of Hebrews, that it would certainly use somewhere in there the passage from Exodus 20 as a foundation for this major discussion on the topic of rest. But interestingly, the author of Hebrews doesn't mention the fourth commandment at all. In fact, 
No part of the Mosaic law is even mentioned in his argument. But that's where we've landed on the issue in our modern day. That's where our conversations end up. So, just maybe, (laughs) it's time to rethink the biblical topic of rest. And when we do that, let's see where the author of Hebrews leads us in his instruction. Well, in the last episode, uh, the one on translation versus transliteration, we noticed that the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 95 in several places when discussing the rest that's available to believers today. Here, I'll just read from Hebrews 3, 7 through 8. It says, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, and here's the quote of Psalm 95, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. And just by those two short verses, it might seem like the provocation and the trials that the author quotes there were maybe a way of summarizing the Israelites' entire 40 years in the wilderness. But in the last episode, when we looked at Psalm 95 in the Old Testament, in our English translations, we discovered that provocation and trial, those are just translations of two proper nouns that are attributed to one specific story in the Old Testament. It's the events that happened at Meribah and Massa, and that story is found in Exodus 17. It's not two places, it's just one place, but things went so horribly wrong there that they gave it two names. So that's a lot of background information, and it gets us up to speed up to this Exodus 17 story that we're going to look at in a little more detail right now. And what we're going to find out is Exodus 17, the story of Meribah and Massa, it is the last in a series of stories that involves three tests that are given. And it's these three tests that seems to be the key to understanding how to find the rest that's available to our distracted generation. I mentioned earlier that expression, the third time's a charm. That expression suggests at least a hope of something that doesn't always happen, where people succeed on the third try. And what we'll find out is that Meribah and Massa, it's a story of a third test. And it's this third time that wasn't a charm. So to close out today's episode, we're just taking a nosedive down deep into the Exodus story and specifically focusing in on the events that happened after the people crossed through the Red Sea, or the Sea of Reeds, but before they get to the Promised Land and send in the 12 spies. There's a series of three tests. And for this last portion of the episode, I'll be using some segments out of my book, Rethinking Rest. So I mentioned three tests. Well, If the third test is in Exodus 17 at Meribah and Massa, we've got to go backwards to find that. So if you go back to Exodus 15, you'll find the first test. It's at a place called Marah. 
and reading from my book, after the people pass through the waters of the Red Sea and they travel three days' journey into the wilderness of Shur, this is where these students, these new students of the God of Israel, it's where they received their first test at a place called Mara. If you want to read it, you can find it in Exodus 15, verses 22 through 27. It's in that story that the waters are bitter. The name Mara means bitter. So <laughs> they gave the place a name that's kind of like a warning sign. Hey, don't drink the water. But when the people find out that they can't drink the waters that are there, they begin, can you guess, grumbling and complaining to Moses. They don't cry out to the Lord like they had in a previous story, but Moses does cry out on the people's behalf. Exodus 15.25 says, Then he, that's Moses, cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. This tree, when it was applied to the waters, turned the waters of death into the waters of life. And it was on the third day in the wilderness that a tree from the Lord brought their salvation. Just as an aside, I would suggest to you that this is maybe one of those Old Testament stories where there is a death-like experience, and on the third day, God saves them from that death-like experience. In this case, with a tree, which is really interesting because that's the description given to the cross in the New Testament. And then the text in Exodus says this, There he that's God, made for them a statute and a regulation. And there he, God, tested them, the people. And there it is, the first of the three tests. So on their trip out of slavery, there was a lack of water, and God tested the people by bringing them into a situation that they couldn't solve on their own. Well, why would God do that? God wanted to see their response. That was the test. How would the students respond is the question. And how did they respond? <laughs> they grumbled and they complained. And you might guess if that's the response to the test question, you got it. They failed the test. And yet, interesting to note in this progression that we're going through, the introduction of the conflict here, that God was still faithful to these people, despite their response. God had given them a test, waited to see what their response was. They failed. And yet God was still faithful. This is a new generation that doesn't know the God of Israel. It's been a long time since they've heard from him, and they're getting to know their teacher a little bit better. Well, it's that story in Exodus 15, the first test at Marah, that leads to the second test. And it's in the wilderness of sin. And the word sin here is just a transliteration. <laughs> Go back to the last episode if you need to know what that is. We've just brought the sound of a Hebrew word into English. It has nothing to do with our English word sin. This is just the name of a wilderness that they were in. And it's this next narrative that takes place in that wilderness of sin that we find in Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 through 21. 
And again, God has led the Israelites into a seemingly impossible situation. They didn't have enough food. And the whole congregation, guess what they did? They grumbled and complained that Moses had brought them into the wilderness to die of hunger. But what was God's response? Exodus 16.4 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether or not they will walk in my instruction. And there it is, the second test. God provides both bread, and we didn't read about it, but quail too for the people, and he gives them specific instructions regarding how much and when to collect the food he's providing. Some students, uh, they actually followed his directions. But some, and I used to be a teacher, <laughs> like any test, some didn't pass. And so you've got these first two stories. The first test at Mara, the bitter waters, they failed the test. God was faithful. The second test, wilderness of sin. It was food this time. It wasn't water. It was food. And yet they still grumbled and complained. They didn't learn that God was faithful from the water test. So God was faithful again, gave him a chance to get to know him a little bit better, figure out his character, figure out what kind of God he is and how he takes care of his people. And those two stories lead to what I call the final exam. And we've made our way <laughs> to Meribah and Massa. And we're in Exodus chapter 17. And as we arrive at the final exam, we just need to mention that these events, the ones at Meribah and Massa, remember, this is the place that is linked, not just to Psalm 95, but as we go back into the book of Hebrews, chapters 3 and 4, where the author is talking about the rest that's available to believers today, this is the story that both of those, Psalm 95 and Hebrews 3 and 4, Meribah and Massa is the story that both of those scriptures use to make their point. And how does the story go? Well, it says that all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, that was the last test, according to the command of the Lord. And they camped at Rephidim. And then there's an interesting statement. And there was no water for the people to drink. Exodus 17, 1. Let me just stop and ask you the question. Does this sound familiar to you at all? That's the question that the author of the Exodus progression of stories wants you to ask. He's assuming that you have read the story from start to finish and that you have just got done reading about two tests that the people largely failed by grumbling and complaining. And he expects you to realize that the first tests, the waters of Mara, those were regarding waters. Now, in that story, the waters were there. They were just undrinkable. It says they were bitter, but that really probably means they were undrinkable like poison. And he also wants you to realize that in the second test, God switched it up a little bit and tested them regarding food. These are kind of basic staples, aren't they? And so when we get to the final exam, the third test in the series of three, do you think that it's just by chance? that God chooses to test them 
regarding something that they've already been tested on. This is either God being incredibly cruel or it's God being incredibly generous because he's retesting. He's giving them a chance in an area of life in which they've already seen him be faithful. And he's bringing it up again. And he's encouraging a faithful response. The large majority of them are already waking up seven days a week in faith, either looking for the bread from heaven that has fallen, or on the seventh day, trusting that the double portion that they collected on day six is still going to be good to eat. They're developing a trust relationship with the Lord in this process. And then God brings them to Meribah and Massa, the final exam. And this time, they have a chance to learn from the previous test and hopefully do better. I've already let the cat out of the bag, though. (laughs) This is not third time's a charm. But they do have a chance to trust God's plan and to wait for his provision. But how did the people respond in Exodus 17? That's the real question. Well, verse 2 says, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? And there it is, the final exam. But this time, it's the people who tested the Lord. And let's not forget that Psalm 95 and Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 suggests that it's this response in Exodus 17 that kept the people from experiencing their rest in the promised land. What was God's response? Well, he was still faithful. Verses 5 and 6 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. And go, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So the people, they chose to grumble and complain, and it led to the hardening of their hearts. But did you notice that despite their response, God was still faithful and provided exactly what they needed. So, what's significant about this event? Well, God had been gracious and faithful, and he gave the people a chance to learn from the previous tests and respond differently. But they didn't. Instead of choosing a faithful response of trusting God's plan and his timing, the people questioned him. But they questioned him the same way that they had before. And that's what flipped the tables in this third story. The people developed a habit of questioning God and that caused them to fail their final exam. That's Meribah and Massa. And it's the third time that wasn't the charm. Rather, it was the choice that prevented them from entering God's rest. And why is this event highlighted both in Psalm 95 and Hebrews 3 and 4? Well, the author of Hebrews suggests that we can learn from these events, the ones that we just walked through, and choose a different outcome for ourselves. 
we can respond differently to the tests that God gives us. And if we do, if we're able to respond in faith rather than grumbling and complaining, the book of Hebrews suggests that that is one of the major keys to finding the rest that our generation finds so elusive. Psalm 95, 7 through 9. But let's not hear this as the words of David recounting a story out of the Old Testament. Let's hear them as the author of Hebrews suggested we should hear them as a message directly to us in our modern day, in our modern struggles, in our modern tests. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did at Meribah, is in the day of Massa in the wilderness. When your fathers tested me, they tried me even though they had seen my work. Well, that's all I've got for today. But before we sign off, let me just get up in your business just a little. I think that's what the author of Hebrews would want me to do. <laughs> let me just ask you a couple questions. When you think about your life, in what ways would you say God has been faithful to you? Was it something to do with your family, maybe with your job or with your finances? Has God been faithful in your church, in your health? And let me get a little, even maybe more personal. Does God allow situations in our life to occur that we can't solve on our own? That's a weird concept, isn't it? Is it possible that God sometimes even leads us into these situations because they are the path that will lead us out of our unrest? I'm going to suggest to you that the REST API, what the author of Hebrews and David in his psalm and the message coming out of the book of Exodus, is that yes, he does. God does allow things and even leads us into situations that we cannot solve on our own. And I'm guessing in the tens of people that might be listening to this podcast, there's probably somebody going through something right now. That seems impossible. And might it give you a different set of eyes if you somehow viewed that as a test? Not a punishment, not a way of God saying shame on you in any way. Just a test, uh, an opportunity for you to respond in a certain way. Maybe a way that you haven't learned before, but that God is bringing back around in your life. So I wrote this book on Rethinking Rest and I am thoroughly convinced that God wants to see how we will respond. He often gives us a chance to develop faith in his plan instead of trying to create one of our own. And hey, no, I get it. We might not always think that we deserve our situations, or we might not even agree with God's response that he gives. And that's okay. But let's not forget that he's the one who knows how things work best. He's the one that created the order and the function of the cosmos. And his ultimate goal is not to have us fail, but he wants the first time or the second time, or if need be, the third time to be the charm, the charm 
that allows us to succeed and respond correctly to his tests and let that lead us to our place of rest where we accept his order and structure. And that's really all I have for you today. Hey, who do you know that needs to hear what you just heard? Would you consider reaching out to them right now? And all you have to say is, hey, you've got to listen to this episode of the Rethinking Scripture podcast. Oh, and one more thing. This episode was brought to you today by the letter G and by the number three. <laughs> bye bye. <laughs> three, that's a magic number. Yes, three. it is. It's the magic number. Music, in a measure, measure in a music, breaking three parts. Casually see, but don't do like-